Hi everyone, it's Drew Perot, the executive producer of the Broken Brain series and host of the Broken Brain podcast. The goal of this podcast is to continue the conversations that Dr. Hyman started during the Broken Brain series and invite guests that we highly respect to help us dive deeper into the topics of brain health, longevity, and living your best life. I'm excited to have you back for a new episode and to cover some new material with today's featured guest, who also is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Deanna Minnick. Dr. Minnick is an internationally recognized teacher, author, scientist, speaker, and artist. She has more than 20 years of diverse, well-rounded experience in the fields of nutrition and functional medicine, including clinical practice, research, product formulation, writing, and education. She's authored six books on health and wellness and over 15 scientific papers in various publications. Dr. Minnick's passion is teaching a whole self-approach to nourishment and bridging the gaps between science, spirituality, and art in medicine. Dr. Minnick, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. It's an honor to have you here. Hi, Drew. It's great to be here with you talking about one of my favorite topics, getting into the brain. Yeah, I couldn't think of anybody better. So Dr. Minnick, you know, Dr. Hyman and I are huge fans of your work, and we think of you as really the go-to person for balanced research-based information on nutrition because you just have such an understanding of the science. You've spent so much of your career showing the public how food impacts us on a cellular level. It's not just this idea of calories in and out to fill our bellies. It's actually information that tells our DNA in real time, how to express itself, which has all sorts of different implications, even on mood. Can you help us understand and help our listeners understand how our food choices can influence and change our moods and what foods change moods the most? Yeah, that's a great first question to get us going. You know, over the years in working with so many different clients and teaching and workshops, one thing I have noticed is that our relationship to food and eating represents our relationship to our life. And if we think about that a little bit deeper, looking at our life, what determines our life choices? Many times it's our moods, it's our state of mind. If you look at the science on foods and the, the neurochemistry, what we see is that foods that we eat, that we choose to eat, influence how we feel. And then, as you can imagine, how we feel is going to determine the foods that we choose to eat. So there is this two-way street that goes back and forth between food and mood. And what I was really pleasantly surprised to see was that in one of the top-tier medical journals back in 2015, I believe it was The Lancet Psychiatry. And The Lancet's a, a big medical journal for doctors. And one of the things that they were bringing out in this article that I can recall <laughs> is that they were talking about the role of nutrition and mental health. I do think that the 21st century is all about mental health. It's the age of the brain. And they were getting into how healthy diets, looking at less processed food, more nutrient-dense food, things that resemble more like the Mediterranean diet, leads to a good mood. And then unhealthy diets, things like having lots of sugar-sweetened beverages, lots of processed foods, lots of the fried foods that contain things like what we would call advanced glycation end products, lead to depressed mood. So it's really interesting that um, we're starting to see these connections. And what the science would suggest is that food drives mood more than our mood drives our food choices. But we have to start somewhere kind of in that cycle, right? And so, gosh, there have been so many different studies showing that different kinds of foods lead to different kinds of effects. And if we just look at general food patterns, what we see is that if we eat more of a Mediterranean diet, and let, let's just step back for a second, because if we look at all the different diets out there, the Mediterranean diet is the one that is most well studied. That means if you go to all the journals and do a search on all the different diets, whether it's ketogenic or vegan, vegetarian, paleo, the one that comes up the most is the Mediterranean diet. And we don't hear a lot about it, which is really interesting. We hear a lot of trends about all these other diets, but we don't really hear a lot about the Mediterranean diet. But what I have seen as it relates to mood is that when people follow the Mediterranean diet, there was one particular study, and this was published some years ago, even close to like a decade ago with 
10,000 people. And what they showed was that the more that people tracked with the Mediterranean diet, the less depression they had. And then there was another study that showed that when people were eating more fast foods, commercial baked goods, things that are fast and on the run, that they had more depression. So, you know, studies are showing us that food patterns are really significant. And then, you know, I monitor this literature all the time, and I, I see it even in, in online programs in which I'm working with people to give them a, a way of eating that's really colorful. And one of the first things that I notice is that, indeed, their mood state changes. But there was another study that was just released uh, at mid-April 2018. And this study, I, I even posted it on my Facebook page because I was just so shocked at what they found looking at food and mood. Uh, they did this study in hundreds of young adults and they looked at what they were eating and how they were feeling. And they found that having fruits and vegetables predicted lower levels of mental illness. And that these people, when they were eating more fruits and vegetables, had better mood. And they whittled, whittled it down to 10 different foods that they found to be most impactful. So I'm assuming that we might want to just mention those. Absolutely. Let's dive right into them. <laughs> yeah. So those 10 foods are carrots, bananas, apples, dark green leafy vegetables like spinach, grapefruit, lettuce, citrus fruits, fresh berries, which I know we're going to talk about, cucumber and kiwi fruit. So as you can see, a lot of fruits and vegetables. And from what I have seen with other studies is that indeed, you know, there, there was this really neat study in which they showed that when people were eating more of these colorful fruits and vegetables, like the ones that I just called out, but also just other ones too, that people tended to be more creative, more curious, which is so interesting that they even measured curiosity because that is a part of our mental function, really looking at curiosity, imagination. And they also had a better sense of well-being compared to people who didn't eat a lot of these fruits and vegetables. It's so interesting, especially when you think of kids. I think of myself growing up and I was raised vegetarian from our background. And going to school, I didn't really have a lot of options, not to mention that the regular options that everybody else had were not that healthy. Pizza, chicken nuggets, you know, the standard sort of school diet. And I can just remember as a kid feeling so not creative, so not in my creative power, like really school was a chore to get through. And then much later on in my life, when I changed my diet, it's like almost that creative switch was turned on. And I never really thought of myself as being creative when I was younger. And as I got older and my diet changed, there was a whole different sort of sense of being with it. You know, it's so interesting that you remember how you were when you were young and whether or not you were creative or if you were moody. And so many, I think so many parents would say that, oh, wow, it's just natural for my, my child to be moody when they're growing up. You know, they're a teenager, their hormones are changing. But I do think, just like you said, you know, what, what great perception on your part that your creativity was enhanced later in life as you started to eat better. And I think we can help a lot of kids and young adults that are really struggling with mood. You know, it's so common that parents want to fix what's going on, whether it's through pharmaceuticals or, you know, always looking to the outside, like, what am I doing wrong? But there can be some very basic things that we do with food, just looking at colorful foods as an example of that. And yeah, you know, you mentioned growing up vegetarian. And I, one of the things about me is I don't preach to a certain dietary dogma. So it's fine if people want to be vegetarian or vegan or paleo or flexitarian or what I like to focus on mostly, and I feel like this message resonates with kids and young adults too, is simply to have more colorful plant-based foods. And I feel like that's something that all of us can do. And it's going to give us a lot of nutrient density. It's going to change our brain. It will change our behavior, our mood state, and it'll make us perform better in everyday life. You know, it's almost like food and the color of food and the variety is, it's been such a part, it, it, it's almost like people think that they're very familiar with it, but it's, we forget that when we don't have it, 
we can underestimate the impact that not having that variety, that color, those foods that really literally light us up inside. I think part of the work that we're all trying to do, both in this podcast, especially the work that you're trying to do out there is where people may not think it's that big of a deal. It truly is a big deal. It can completely alter your mood. It can completely alter your function. We're just not eating the way that our genetics have evolved around. And if we take that for granted, we could be missing out on a lot. We can. Um, you said that really well. One of my mantras is that if we eat colorfully, we'll live colorfully. And that mantra really came from the work that I was doing, seeing people's lives would change when they started to eat more colorful foods. And they really started paying attention. You know, so many of us have our brains wired in this analysis paralysis mode where we get fi- focused and fixated on calories. We're, we're thinking about all the sugar. We're thinking about all the fat. And all of that is important, but it's not going to keep us emotionally connected to food in a <laughs> more of a, a holistic way. And so one of the things that I've done in a lot of my work is bring forward the artistic, colorful angle. And, you know, just personally, some of this also comes from the fact that when I was growing up, my mom was a pretty strict health nut, and there were certain things that we could and could not have, and it made me want things even more when I was told that I couldn't eat them, especially when I was a teenager. <laughs> and so now stepping away and being in my late 40s, I think about, wow, you know, wh- maybe food isn't so complicated. Maybe what brought me into a healing relationship with food was tapping into color, And initially, it was just more from the aesthetic appeal of looking at these different colors on the plate. But then as I got into graduate school, I started to study a lot of these colorful compounds. And there are thousands of them, by the way. You know, often in nutrition, we don't hear about phytonutrients. Phyto is plant nutrients, so nutrients and plants. But these things are pigments. They have lots of color. They don't necessarily have calories. And what we're learning is that they're not just antioxidants, they're also functional components in our bodies. Like this is the new science. The new science is telling us that, hey, did you know that orange from carrots, that orange color is beta carotene? Did you know that it plays a role in fertility? Or did you know that the proanthocyanidins that are in blueberries and blackberries help the brain with learning and memory? Because these compounds actually go into that part of the body and structurally and functionally change the brain or whatever tissue that it's going into. It's changing the actual signaling. So it's not like these colors are just looking pretty. They're looking pretty, but they're also doing something really profound in our bodies. Yeah, it's almost like because of primarily food marketing and and that side, our primary association with foods and colors is based on flavors. If we see something, in, in fact, to the degree that like blueberry is a flavor, right? Uh, these items are flavors that we take and then we adulterize them and we try to create soft drinks or this or that. So today still, most people, they, when they look at a color, they associate it with some sort of flavor. And here you are. And and that's actually the premise of your book, The Rainbow Diet, which is that this is so much deeper than that. All these colors have different impacts in the body. And that's why when we don't have them, again, we might be missing out on uh, phytonutrients, antioxidants, and a whole bunch of other things that maybe we haven't even identified yet. Yeah, it's really true. And so let me just walk for the audience through all the different colors and what the color code is. And and we'll go a bit deeper into the brain part, but I just want to kind of lay out the rainbow so people understand what I mean. So let's start with red. (laughs) Red is, um, when I see red colored foods, and when I'm thinking red, I'm thinking apples, of course, you know, and, and typically the skin is where we're going to find a lot of these nutrients. And many people take off the skin, they peel it off or they shave it off, they cut it off. As long as we're washing those skins really well, they're full of phytonutrients. We really need to cultivate the skins. And so when I'm thinking of red, I'm not just thinking apples. I'm thinking cherries, cranberries, pomegranate. I just bought some pomegranate seeds yesterday, some arils. And so I keep those. Those are great for a number of different things. I'm thinking beets and the the red beet root as much as I am the leaves, which are, of course, green. 
I'm thinking about red onion. I'm thinking about tomato. Goodness, I mean, there are so many different things. There are some great studies on strawberries as well as watermelon. Okay, so what do all these red foods have in common? Well, they tend to be, if you look at a lot of the phytonutrients and nutrients that they contain, they tend to be for reducing inflammation and helping with immune function. So many of these red colored foods contain high vitamin C, like even acerola cherry or red bell pepper rivals an orange in terms of the amount of vitamin C that it contains. And it also contains a lot of other things. So when you think red, think of inflammation and immune support. So that's, that's red and, and getting a variety too, not just the same old red foods. My sister, it was funny, I was having a conversation with her and I'm always asking my family like, okay, did you get your rainbow and what are you eating? What are you wearing? And, uh, you know, they just find me, you know, whatever humorous. <laughs> so my sister's like, yeah, yeah, I was eating tomatoes. And, um, I said, you know what? It's not just tomatoes. You've got to have variety within the spectrum. So yeah, tomatoes are good for some people. I, I actually don't eat tomatoes. It's a nightshade and I react to tomatoes. So I have to find an even greater variety of red colored foods to help support me. Those that are rich in things that perhaps the tomatoes would be giving me like lycopene. So I can do watermelon. I can do guava. I can do pink grapefruit. I mean, I get so much variety every week when I go to the grocery store, I try to try one food that I haven't had in a long time. So think about that for yourself as we go through the colors. That's great advice. So that's, that's, that's um, red. red. Yep. Yeah. Now, orange is connected to reproductive health, fertility. And so when I'm thinking of orange foods, I'm thinking of apricots, cantaloupe. I just bought some kumquats, which are great. They're so small and you can just um, eat them. They're, they're so tasty. You talked about flavor. It's <laughs> a lot of these plant foods are abundant in flavor. Um, persimmons come to mind. You know, there are available in, in certain markets, but then also some of the more common ones like oranges, nectarines, um, some people like mandarins. I know mandarins were just in, in season here where I live in the Pacific Northwest. So the smaller, non-pesticide, waxy-coated uh, mandarins, you can get those. Just make sure you read the label on those carefully. And when I think of vegetables, I think of sweet potatoes, yams, pumpkin, even orange bell pepper. I already mentioned carrots. So orange foods are full of carotenoids. These are the things that I studied in graduate school. And the carotenoids are very protective. So you find them in the ovary for women, and they're part of the, the protective process and also the process of ovulation. You also find them in sperm and helping to reduce oxidative stress and to ensure the survival of sperm. So in general, when I think of orange, even though you can use it widespread throughout the body and even um, levels of these carotenoids are associated with cognition, I tend to think of reproductive health in general. Amazing. Yellow is a common one. And usually when we think of yellow, we think of a lot of unhealthy yellow foods, but there are some good healthy yellow foods like banana. Like, did you know bananas are high in serotonin? I had no idea. Yeah, you know, a lot of these different foods also contain these biogenic amines, which many of us think of when we think of the brain, kind of like, wow, those are neurotransmitters. Serotonin is a neurotransmitter. But a lot of foods contain these amines. We don't know that if you eat a lot of bananas, if you're going to change your neurochemistry because of the serotonin it contains. But keep in mind that the gut, as everybody knows, the gut is, some people would say it's even the first brain. Mm. It does register a lot of these different components coming in. So there's bananas, there's uh, ginger, lemon, pineapple, um, gosh, I'm thinking about star fruit, yellow onions. And so when I think of yellow, I think of digestion. I think of burning that, that inner fire. So a lot of those foods, as I go through each of these colors too, just be thinking about all of them helping the brain. Because every body system is very interconnected, as we know in functional medicine, and especially digestion. So there's that. Uh, the next one is green, and green is all about the heart. It's the cardiovascular system, and I'm always teaching to my students that whatever we do for the heart, we do for the brain. So whatever we do for the heart, we do for the brain. And why is that? Well, look at the location. If we are taking care of the heart, I mean, the heart has to do a lot of work to pump blood 
and to get that oxygen up to the brain. So if we help the heart by keeping the blood vessels wide open and fully relaxed in order to get that circulation moving, then we're helping the brain. We're helping our thinking. We're helping our cognition. We're helping our sense of focus. And nature, in my opinion, has intended that we get a lot of green foods because, <laughs> I mean, look at it. There's no shortage. And I don't even have to list them for you. I mean, think of all the vegetables. Think of all the fruits. I mentioned kiwi fruit already as it related to that study. So pick your favorite green food and know that a lot of these green foods contain nitrates. And nitrates are not a bad thing. I think many of us have learned about nitrates and nitrites, but that's in relationship to processed foods. In nature, there are naturally occurring nitrates that when we eat them, these plant foods, they come into the body and then we break them down into eventually into nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is a good gas in the body that makes the blood vessels expand. We get mm. very calm when we eat these green foods. And for so, you personally on the greens, does it also include like green juices and green smoothies? You bet. Absolutely. Um, some of the highest nitrate containing foods, however, are chervil, arugula, a lot of the bitter greens, although spinach is also in that category. So if you have a green smoothie with spinach and with beet greens, you are really loading the deck when it comes to nitrates. And I want to mention too, that one of my favorite things to do lately is not so much the smoothies, um, but also to bring in purees. So even yesterday I cooked up, I took asparagus, I just diced it up, threw it into a steamer. I also put in a zucchini and I put in, um, my novel food for this week was a fennel bulb. <laughs> How many people eat fennel? You know, not a lot. So, and I don't very often. So I decided to get fennel. So I cut that up. I cut up the zucchini. I steamed it all. And once everything turned bright green, I put it into the blender blended it until I was no longer seeing any pieces of the food and I was just seeing a puree and then I poured it out and it made for such a great nice warming spring soup well it's not really a soup you know you could add water and make it a little bit more liquid but what I like about that is in order to get the nitrates converting into nitric oxide you need to interact the food with your salivary bacteria so when I'm having a puree I'm actually keeping that in my mouth a little bit longer, perhaps, than a smoothie. I'm taking more time. Uh, and that's why I tell people, chew your smoothies. <laughs> Did you know? And also, I'm going to mention this quickly. Chewing leads to better cognition. And most people don't realize that. You know, we're in a liquid food culture these days where people are just drinking shakes, and uh, which is okay. You know, it's a great way to get nutrient density. But we need to mix it up a bit and chew your smoothies whenever you can, even if there's nothing really to chew. Just make sure that, you know, I just learned this. Um, some years ago, I was teaching for the Institute of Functional Medicine with a biological dentist, and she started talking about how when people get their teeth removed and they start wearing dentures or they get root canals, how cognition can change. And at first, I was kind of skeptical. I mean, of course, I have great respect for her, and I trusted what she was saying, but I wanted to understand the science. So I started looking into the science of chewing and cognition, and oh my gosh, I was so surprised. I ended up writing a blog on it, and indeed, you know, there is a sense of that each of the root fibers underneath each tooth is connecting and signaling the brain. So if you have lots of stimulation, lots of chewing, you're going to be favorably changing brain activity. Wow. What a connection. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting one. But if we're talking about food and eating, many people are mindless eaters. They just gulp their food and they're just drinking their food all the time. So let's just not forget to chew. And I would say check out a biological dentist, somebody to get your bite right. I mean, so much of nutrition starts in the mouth. It's about your saliva, your pH. It's about your teeth. It's about proper bite and occlusion. Many people do a lot of clenching. They're wearing down their teeth. They're losing teeth because they don't have minerals in their diet. Their jaw is changed from having years of processed food and then later on braces in life. There's actually a, a a uh, good friend of ours, uh, Dr. Stephen Lin, who wrote a book called The Dental Diet, which also explores a little bit of these concepts. I love it. You know, I, I feel like we could, uh, there needs to be more on teeth and, and nutrition for people out there. 
All right, so there, that's green. The, the last one we'll cover is blue-purple, and that's where I want to stay for a little bit because there's a lot of good, juicy stuff on blue-purple in the brain. And the way that you can remember blue-purple being connected to the brain is just think about the Bs, right? Blue, purple, the B, and then B for brain, B for blood-brain barrier, all of these important things. And blueberries are part of that. You know, I did a whole webinar last year just on blue purple foods in the brain and it's pretty staggering at first you know i'm always the biggest skeptic of things when i hear them and then when i start diving in and seeing that oh my goodness you know there are actually clinical trials looking at blueberries and their effect on mood and cognition there's also been some studies on blackberries as well as purple grape juice so you know the concord grape juice that you can find in the store absolutely yeah, you know, just there have been studies done on young adults where they would drink a little bit of juice versus a different type of juice or just a placebo control of some type like water. And what the researchers would find in these studies is that the grape juice helped with mood and certain aspects of learning. And when we look at certain aspects of learning with the blue purple foods, typically it's learning, memory, it's attention, focus. So <laughs> I was just giving a lecture this past weekend on the rainbow diet and really getting into each of these. And I'm surprised because many people are starting to become more aware of the benefits of berries. I feel like, you know how we all kind of fell in love with kale and, right. you know, everything was kale. And people, even in the Pacific Northwest, I would see T-shirts that would say, I love kale, believe it or not. I feel like we're moving towards blueberries. You know, there is, and, and, and what I would say here is let's not get too focused on just blueberries. I want us to have variety. So if I had a choice between blueberries or blackberries, I would actually choose blackberries because if you look at the blackberry, it's got all those little segments. And if you are just focused on the skin, just think what would happen if you were to take each of those little segments of the blackberry and take out the skin, you'd have a lot more surface area than you would have with a blueberry. A blueberry is, you know, what you see is what you get. And so you want smaller fruits with greater surface area because you want that skin because it's the blue pigment or even kind of the purplish pigment in those skins that's what's helping the brain. Low sugar fruits, wide variety, things that you can include on, on a regular basis that boost up all those pigmentations that impact the brain. You got it. Absolutely. And you know, blueberries aren't that high glycemic, nor are blackberries. One of the things I tell people is eat smarter, you know, literally. <laughs> and the way that you do that is um, if you have something that's a little bit medium to high glycemic index, but yet still beneficial, couple that with something that is low in glycemic index, like protein or fat. You know, I'm not into the whole food combining thing. There isn't enough evidence to suggest that we need to eat fruits alone, away from protein. So like even this morning, what did I have as a snack? I had a cashew yogurt, which is not really, it, it, well, it's not dairy and it's unsweetened. And then I took uh, a bunch of flaxseed meal. I took some frozen blueberries that I defrosted a little bit. And by the way, you can freeze blueberries because you will not destroy the phytonutrients in them. They're very resilient. And then I put some nuts. Nuts are incredible for the brain, especially walnuts. Walnuts even look like a brain. And when you look at the science of walnuts, they also contain serotonin. Mm. <laughs> They're like bananas, you know, they contain serotonin. So nature is telling us something here. So I put a bunch of nuts on it and then I just mixed it up and it wasn't super sweet, but I have a different palate now that I eat whole foods. I don't crave a lot of sweets. And so when I have those blueberries combined with all of these other things, I mean, right there, what I had, everything I had was very brain promoting. And also very satisfying. You know, it's, I think we, we forget how satisfying it is to eat food from a lot of different variety. We eat foods from a lot of different yeah. things. We we naturally gravitate gravitate towards it. It makes us it makes our mouth salivate. But on, but on the contrast, when most people do an inventory of what they're eating on a regular basis, even often quite healthy people or people who think that they eat very healthy, the colors don't vary as much as the science reflects that it should be varying. Yes, bingo. Um, and you know what? They, in the science, they call this dietary diversity. 
that if you can shake up your food ruts, and we all have food ruts. I'm always looking at my food ruts like, okay, what do I keep eating every three to four days? I need to change it up. Every three to four days, you should be introducing new foods, get out of your rut. And some people think, oh, isn't it good that I had oatmeal every day for 70 years of my life? (laughs) And I don't want to make them feel bad, but I'm thinking to myself, you know what? We need to get more variety in your diet. (laughs) And not just because of the pigmentation, but also there's the gut bacteria component. If we want a strong, varied gut bacteria that keeps our immune system strong, that helps us with our digestive health and has so many other implications on the body, varying food, not just, you know, you know, seasonally but but on a on a regular basis and not getting used to things that that's also helpful for our our gut bacteria it is and and look food allergies are one of the biggest topics today in fact i was just at a a conference this past weekend and people were coming up to me talking about food allergy i wasn't even talking about it in my talk but people wanted to know about it and they're kind of like deanna why is it that you know in my 40s and my 50s now all of a sudden i can't eat these foods And I said, well, what have you been eating all your life? Let's talk about that. And of course, it's the brown, yellow, and white foods diet. They don't have resilience. And if we think of the brain, okay, you know, one of the things that I've looked at is that with healthy aging, we need flow. We need resilience. We need plasticity, not in a toxic plastic way, but in a a good, healthy, kind of like stretchy way. And one of the ways that we stretch ourselves, especially our neuronal plasticity and resilience, is by having dietary diversity. There are actually studies that show that when we shake up our diet, we have less food allergies, and that's especially in kids. So if we can start young, even better. But don't worry if you're older, you know, just start now, you know, just make today the first day of the rest of your life. And you bring in the food variety for reducing allergy. It helps with body composition. And there was even a study that I can recall showing that when people had greater selections of fruits and vegetables in their diet, they had lower blood pressure, lower blood pressure. And if you're helping the vasculature, you're helping your brain. So it's it's kind of like all roads. It's all connected. All roads are leading to the same thing. How do you balance it out? You know, Deanna, um, you mentioned earlier in the conversation how you don't do tomatoes because they're a nightshade. Um, can you go into a little bit more about that? And, you know, that's kind of connected to food sensitivity. I also, I can't do tomatoes, bell peppers, eggplant. I notice uh, a flushing that happens on my face and sometimes it even causes um, a breakout for me. So why, why would that happen with certain foods, you know, think of somebody would think a tomato, well, a tomato is healthy. And since we're on the topic of food sensitivity, could you just expand on that a little bit more? I'm so glad that you asked that question. Um, You know, eating is so personalized. And so everybody is going to be different at different times in their lives. So I usually think of two things. One is constitutionally, what were you born with? Some of us are just going to be naturally a little bit more sensitive to things. Like I'm kind of like you, Drew, my skin reacts. I'll get a breakout, I'll get a rash, I'll get some inflammation, and it's pretty darn obvious because I can see the redness or I feel itchy. And so for me, my skin is always my sensor. And you know, what I would say to everybody is really embrace your body sensor. Many people get really <laughs> like annoyed at their body, kind of like, oh, my skin is doing this again, it's flushing again. It's like, no, that is like your first line of defense. Thank goodness your body is telling you that that food's not good for you. So yeah, constitutionally, everybody comes in with certain genetics. And while we say that your DNA is not your destiny, it still counts for something. We still have to know that we're working with a certain template, right? Now, as we move through life, we have different experiences. This is the epigenetics part of us. And this is where we see more of the conditional allergies and intolerances. So we go through life, maybe we have a lot of stress. That's one of the biggest things is what I see, you know, stress changes our gut function. If we're changing our gut function, we're changing our immune function. If we're changing our immune function, we're changing up how we are taking in foods and assimilating them. So we, and and hormones plays into that, not just the sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone, but also things like cortisol and insulin and glucagon. You know, there's a nexus here of so many different things. So it's not just one thing. I mean, even athletes, when they do really strenuous events, they can get leaky gut. And this has been documented in the literature, kind of the whole Ironman event. You know, we we subject ourselves to a lot of 
just body stress, emotional stress, mental stress. If we're taking a test, there are also studies on this where we can get leaky gut and we can get a changed microbiome. So, you know, back to the microbiome, because you mentioned it, Drew, very early on too, is whatever we're cultivating in our body is going to lead to whether or not we're receptive to certain things. So think about, you know, just your constitution, what you were born with, what kind of runs in your family. And, you know, I know my dad also has a hard time with tomatoes and he has a hard time with garlic and some sulfur containing foods too. And I kind of resemble his genetics and it's kind of coming true, even though I live a very different life. Uh, it's not to say that, again, we can't change certain things. We just have to be sensitive to them and, and respectful that, you know, our body is, uh, we, we give it the best we can. But one of the, the best things that everybody can do, no matter what your body type is, is to never have one thing all the time. It, like if I have tomatoes just fresh chopped in a salad and it's not a whole lot, I can tolerate it. But if I were to have tomatoes in my salad and then I'm going to have a, a red lentil soup. And then I go out for dinner and then I have some kind of red sauce on maybe, I don't know, vegetables or something. Now it starts to compound. Now my immune system says, that's enough. I'm going to react and give you red <laughs> in place of that, that red that you're giving me. And so, again, I think tolerance and uh, intolerance can be somewhat navigated through resilience and variety. But Again, you know, we have to know our own bodies. This also might be, you know, there's a lot of people that broken brain was the introduction to them, to the world of functional medicine, to the world of personalized medicine. And so is this also an opportunity to suggest that somebody might consider exploring an elimination diet to get clearer on what foods bother them or not? You know, some people listen to this and they're like, you know what? I don't know if tomatoes bug me. I don't know if this food bugs me. How do I get greater clarity on dialing into those things? Yeah, I, I would say work with a healthcare practitioner who can take you through the process because if you just say, oh, I'm going to do the elimination diet, it, it is so helpful to have a coach and to go through it. I've taken so many people through it. I've gone through it myself. And oftentimes you start just second guessing yourself and you start questioning everything like, okay, am I really having a symptom here or what's happening? And so if you have somebody that's gone through it a million times and who has counseled people, I, I think that that is an excellent way to take the first step is to look at the foods that you're eating. And when you have the elimination diet, you're pairing back a lot of foods that you might normally eat. Now that said, what I want to mention too is I had a, a client some years ago who she went on the elimination diet and we took out the top eight allergens, kind of the, also what Dr. Hyman talks about. We use the, the IFM, the Institute for Functional Medicine Elimination Diet, but I also added in a lot of color. I don't just do the elimination diet. I make sure that whatever I'm taking out, I'm adding in a bunch of colors as we go. And so with her, she did great and her symptoms reduced. She got off some of her medications for arthritis. She was like a new person and she just wanted to stay on it. But then she started to notice, and this is months and months after she had continued on somewhat of a modified elimination diet. She started to notice that, hey, my symptoms are not totally going away. Maybe I should have a food allergy test. So she did and you can get this food allergy kind of test in which you look at IgG and IgE and a, um, a licensed health professional can do that for you. They can order the test and you'll get hundreds of different foods, even spices, even cinnamon. You can find, I mean, there could be really healthy things in the diet that your body is just seeing too much of or it just can't tolerate. So for her, what came up on her food allergy panel was that she was allergic to almonds and flaxseed. Interesting. Two of the, yeah, and, and those were two of the things that she had been doing on the elimination diet. So, you know, always question. And, and with somebody who's seasoned and who has done this, they'll start to recognize for you and help you on your way when you start wondering like, okay, I'm having a reaction or I don't know if I should be including these foods or how long do I do this? Should I get a test? So it, it's, it's fun. You learn a lot about yourself. And, and it also could be that she's temporarily allergic or sensitive to these foods. But then when she works with the practitioner, as we talk about in you know, episode two in The Broken Brain, that sometimes when the gut is repaired, maybe those sensitivities go, go away. 
You know, absolutely. And so that's why I recommend to people to get tested every year. I like for people to do the elimination diet every year and then to get a food allergy test every year. And I've done mine personally. Every year I go in around my birthday, I get all my labs done because I want to see where I'm at and I want to track things before anything crops up because that's how you know when your body's changing or when you have to pay attention to things. And I, in fact, I just recently had my food allergy panel done and it's very different than last year. And I anticipated that because it has in the past, you know, your immune system is not static. If you know that 70% of your immune system is in your gut and your gut lining turns over every three to five days, your immune system is, is for the most part is being reevaluated every six to 12 months. And with environment, we're not even talking about environmental allergies, but that's another issue to consider is when we increase our antigenic load and when we get lots of exposures in our environment, whether through food or through pollen. I live in the Pacific Northwest, as I mentioned, and you know, this season in April 2018, oh my gosh, we have so much pollen. And I don't have allergies specifically to the pollen, but I know a lot of people around me do. And so now their immune system is on alert. And if they start eating certain foods, they might have more of an amplified response than if they didn't have environmental things going on. So one of my favorite things to do is see a doc that has been trained in environmental medicine. My practitioner, my medical doctor is, um, gosh, he's been in functional medicine for a long time. He's almost 80 and he um, lives in the area that I live in and he does a lot of work with environmental medicine. So he understands allergies, whether they're environmental or food related very well. And if we don't feel good in our environment because of the foods that we're eating, we're not going to be able to think well. So uh, taking care of that's a big deal. I'm so glad you mentioned that because there's so many times that people feel like oh my gosh, I used to love this food, but now I eat it. It doesn't make me feel well. And they'll hear from their, you know, well-meaning doctor or their friends are like, you're crazy. Like it's all in your head. Or they'll hear from people in the health world who have said, hey, you know, this food is amazing. It's the next superfood. It's the next this. And they eat it and they don't feel well. That would happen for a lot of my friends with wheatgrass in the early days of like the food movement. You know, people would say, oh, wheatgrass is so great. It's healthy for everybody. You should be doing so many wheatgrass shots and all the time. And I can remember personally, I was downing all these wheatgrass shots and my stomach would just feel so upset afterwards. I'd feel sick. And I later came to learn that a lot of wheatgrass often has extra mold in there because of the way that it's grown and sort of like these conditions that we do. And there could be other reasons that I'm just reacting to it. So one person's, you know, food that makes them feel amazing could be somebody else's you know, poison. And so trusting yourself a little bit and digging deeper, uh, I feel like what you've shared is great because it almost gives permission to people to say it's not just in their head. It's not just in their head. And I like that analogy talking about the broken brain. Uh, and, and not to get too carried away with trends either. You know, right now I feel like people are in love with coconut. Everything coconut. And people will say to me, oh, but Deanna, it has coconut sugar. Isn't it okay? You know, because they hear so many good things about coconut oil or coconut milk or coconut yogurt. And so, you know, be wary of trends. Be wary of how, I mean, I would say just what you said, focus on your body, focus on what's happening for you. Many people misconstrue food allergies and intolerances for a detox reaction and saying like, okay, if I just have more wheatgrass, I'm just detoxing, right? And that's why I'm having this reaction. And I feel like, um, <laughs> you know, we, we shouldn't have such, such symptoms when we're having foods like that. That's, a, that's telling us something. Well, I want to jump into some of the topics of brain health. All that's been incredibly fascinating. And I just love, you know, I just want to acknowledge you, uh, Dr. Minnick, because you just know so much about so many different things. And I just really appreciate that. You can bring such a holistic approach to every subject. So thank you again for being here with us and diving into all these topics. I'm going to continue to take advantage of that. And I want to jump into some topics around brain health. And I want to talk a little about essential fatty acids and you know what they are and what role they play in brain health. And, and not just that we're interested, but you've been studying this topic for a really long time. You actually did your um, research for your PhD on this topic. So help us understand a little bit more. Many people listening have watched the Broken Brain series, they've heard this term of fatty acids, fatty acids, and essential fatty acids, and they know it has something to do with brain health, but they don't fully understand it. Could you help us understand it a little bit better? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, if you look at the brain, 60 to 70 percent of the brain is fat. It's, it's comprised of fat. It's a very greasy substance. You know, that's what makes it very plastic, very pliable, the fact that it can be sculpted. So, yeah, we have fat heads uh, in, a, in a literal way. And so if we don't have here, – here's where we get into to problems. When we have too little fat in the diet, when we have too much fat in the diet – and when we have the wrong ratio of fats in the diet. So and there's an easy way to know where you stack up there. And that is just doing a very simple dried blood spot test with your practitioner. And you can get a sense of all the different fats in your body, actually. And, it, and it's just through the blood. So the blood is representing all the organ systems. We can't say specifically what's in your brain, but we can get an idea of what is in your body based on taking a blood sample. And through this analysis, typically you're looking at 64 fats. You can see something about the total amount of them, and you can see something about how they stack up to one another. And so one of the things to be thinking about with brain health is you really want to be sensitive to any inflammation in the body. In fact, one of my mentors, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, said this phrase, and I'm sure that Dr. Hyman has said it as well, this idea of brain on fire. The idea that the brain can be sick like a regular organ, that it's not to be held away from the body and, and looked at differently. I mean, it, it really does operate much like many of the other organ systems. And so what we're looking to do is to make sure that the brain is held within this anti-inflammatory space. So we don't want in inflammation. The omega-3 fats and omega-6 fats, those are two families of fats that are essential, meaning that our body doesn't make them, so we have to eat those fats. And when I was in graduate school working on my PhD, one of the things that we saw that would happen when people would not get enough of these essential fatty acids would be their hair falls out, their skin becomes really rough and scaly, and a lot of this work is paralleled in the literature too. So then there are mood issues, attention disorders, a lot of brain-associated effects. And so by repairing that balance, and what we're looking at is preferably about a one-to-one -one balance between those omega-3 and omega-6 fats, but then, you know, some researchers say four to one. And there's a way to also look at that if you do get that lab test done. If you just get the very simple test of looking at the omega-3 fats, that's anywhere between $50 to $100. And that can tell you, if you're doing a lot of fish oil supplementation or omega-3 supplementation, it can tell you where you're at. And typically, I like people to do that every three to four months so that they can see uh, where their, their blood is. And, and that's about how long it takes for those red blood cells to turn over. And that would be a test like in a uh, – there's a test that uh, is out there called like Omega Quant. Would that be an example of that type of test? Yeah, that's one you can do without uh, a healthcare practitioner. You can just send in a dried blood spot. And that one I believe is $54. That's one of the, the lower price ones that I've seen. Or you can do it a, a little bit more of a deluxe one through a practitioner in which you can look at all of the fatty acids. And I kind of think that starting from that place first and looking at all of them, uh, it was really interesting because my mom, my mom is really healthy and she went to her functional medicine doctor and she gets all of her labs done. And she found out not that she was deficient in omega-3 and omega-6, but she was deficient in some of the fats that you find in olive oil. And so um, her doctor was saying, you know, maybe you need to have more of these olive oil fats because mm. the omega-7 fats and omega-9, I mean, the body makes them, but uh, for some reason her body was utilizing them more. So it was just good to know, um, you know, just where you stack up in terms of all the fats because they're all very distinct families and the families don't mix. So once you're an omega-3 fat, you're always an omega-3 fat. If then you've got the omega sixes, you've got omega sevens, omega nines, you've got the trans fats, you've got the saturated fats. So it's pretty complex. And if we just do the red blood spot by just getting the, the you know, that omega three level done, I think it's good. But if you really want to look at your health and go deeper and you're trying to figure some things out and your situation is a little bit more complex, it might make sense to go to a practitioner who can look at all of your fats. Fantastic. Um, in the space of functional medicine, you know, we talk about 
not just food and not just, you know, these supplements that can play a role in our health, but there's so many other components. And, you know, we talked about color and how it relates to the variety in diet, but then you also made a reference earlier, which was, you know, like color in your clothing, right? Color in your life. Like we want to like bring more color and more variety in all the things that we can do. Separate from food and, and supplements, what are some of the other things that are out there that that can impact and relate to our brain health that we may not always be thinking about? Ooh, I've got goosebumps on this one. Um, what I really believe, know, and even attempt to do for myself is to read my thoughts like I read my food labels. It's a really big deal to look at what you're thinking on a daily basis. We have so many thoughts that can change the course of our behaviors through the decisions that we make. I mean, you look at the idea of the placebo effect. I don't know if everybody's aware of that, but the placebo effect means that if you believe something's going to happen and that it's favorable in some way, that uh, you can actually change the outcome. There were a number of studies um, that I remember looking at on arthritis. And what they, what they showed in these studies was that 40 to 60% of the outcome of whatever intervention they were looking at there was a 40 to 60% placebo effect, meaning that if somebody thought that they were taking a pill that was going to help them, their mind actually led them down that path of thinking that they were feeling better. <laughs> so incredible. we've got to, yeah, it, it is incredible. I mean, there are journals out there called psychosomatic medicine. You know, even in the Framingham Heart Study, which is a large study, thousands of people, they found that women who believed that they were prone to heart disease because of, you know, whether it was their family or their genetics, that they were nearly four times as likely to die as women with similar risk factors who did not believe that. So if you think that you're going to die of heart disease and you keep thinking that, my dad is like that. My dad has it in his mind that he's probably going to live to about the same age as his parents. And I said, dad, be really careful about what you think. We want you around a long time. We love you. And if you be, if you're thinking this way, you know, it just, it doesn't mean that you're going to create your own destiny per se, but you might start making choices that are moving in that direction. I, I really do think we have to read our thoughts. We have to be looking at what we're thinking. Think of the, the mind as a garden. What are the weeds? What are the toxic thoughts? What are we saying to ourselves over and over again? And so I'll tell you what I'm doing personally, um, because I feel like this is something that I've wanted to work on for years and years, and I have, but I'm ramping it up and amping it up. <laughs> Because I feel like I got the food part down, you know, no problem. I'm, I'm not, I know what to do with food. I've studied food all my life. But if I'm sitting down to a beautiful, colorful meal and my head is full of toxic thoughts, it's like, what am I doing to myself? What am I really feeding myself? And so it's not like I'm wanting to create perfection and say, okay, I'm never going to have a self-critical thought or never going to have a judgmental thought. Because, you know, those things will wax and wane. But one thing that I do personally is um, I do meditate. I know Dr. Hyman, Dr. Hyman and I talked about this. I believe he meditates 20 minutes twice a day is what he told me. Yep. Yeah, which is great. And you know what? Once you start doing it, it's almost like, wow, you can't go back. And if you go back and you stop doing it, it's almost like you realize how you feel so different. And, and one of the things that I've noticed from the literature, and this has changed my practice, is that First of all, meditation can change gene expression. And if you're doing meditation on a consistent basis, even if it's a little bit, like if you did five minutes, maybe you can't do 20 minutes twice a day. I don't do 20 minutes twice a day. I do a long, I do 30 minutes once a day, all at once. During that time, you know, what am I doing? I, I don't do any fancy techniques. Uh, in fact, I change it up just like I do with my food. Sometimes I've got an app on where I've got like a bowl sound or some kind of harmonic sound that I like. Um, other times I'm just sitting there in silence. Uh, what I try to do all the time is make sure that my spine is straight so that, you know, good blood flow to the brain. I'm not in a, like a cave, concave position. I want to be sure that I'm, <laughs> um, I'm paying attention to my body and I'm not laying down and sleeping because I'll just, you know, it's, it's not the same. You've got to have that state of mental awareness. I'm also paying attention to my breathing. And even if I'm having thoughts, I continue to have the thoughts I remain a little bit separate away from the thought. So I'm paying more attention to my breath. 
as I'm doing this meditation. And when you do that, when your heart is in that mode and in that rhythmic flow of your breath, what happens is your brain syncs up. And when the heart and brain are synced up together, as they like to be, you're in this state of what is called coherence. There are lots of different terms for it, but I like the term coherence because it means that the body is in alignment. And that's when you really feel in your zone. It's kind of like, ooh, you know, I'm more creative. I can think better. And I always notice when I'm done with my meditation, holy smokes, I am super, super creative. <laughs> I, I just have all these ideas and it's almost like, okay, let's just be calm, write them down, um, just kind of go with the flow. And I feel very peaceful. It's like my nervous system and the nervous system, again, connects the heart and the brain. And that all just really jives after that session of just 30 minutes a day. And, you know, the, we, we talked uh, quite a bit on, on meditation in this series and, and everybody's question is, you know, well, how do I get started? And I love hearing from different experts that we turn to of, of resources or things that they might feel useful because what works for somebody may not work for another. If somebody was going down this path, any resources that you might share with them if, if they want to get started here, you know, a place that they can get started? Sure. Um, first thing is don't set the bar so high. Um, there's been a lot of work on lifestyle change. And one of the things that leads to long-term change is to do something really super small. So figure out the smallest thing that you can do and just embrace that. So one of the things that I was doing when I first started meditating, and this is really the truth, I would set my, my phone timer for one minute. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to do one minute and that's it. And sometimes a minute felt really long. And so I had to really just work with that minute. And then once I was kind of in the, the groove of that one minute and I was noticing how my body felt, I amped it up to two minutes. And so I started small, felt the difference and realized the importance of that difference and continued to go with it. Um, one of the other things that I did was instead of calling it meditation, I would call it stillness. Sometimes I think that the terminology gets us really, you know, just overly mentally engaged with how we have to do something as if there is a right way. It can feel more like a chore than something that we get to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There can be some, you know, just being quiet, just being quiet. Like this morning, what did I do for meditation? Um, I did a combination. I didn't just do my, my typical sitting there and being quiet. So I walked outside. I live in the woods, so I have the opportunity to, to do this a bit. I live on five acres of a forest. And so I just walked outside, and it was the most beautiful thing because I'm listening to the birds. It was It's just a really nice day today, which I'm so glad for because it's been raining here a lot. And so I just listened. And so sometimes meditation doesn't have to be about thoughts as much as receiving the external sounds around us. You know, one challenge for, for all of us is to try to be quiet within yourself in a really noisy place. Like if you're in New York City, I just got back from New York City. I can imagine being in an apartment with sirens blasting, you're hearing people outside. That's the ultimate when you can really just sit in a place of silence and just feel your, you know, yourself being somewhat separate from that, but yet connected to it. It's not like we have to wipe everything out and be completely in that that place of no thought. I think that's unrealistic. So a little bit of movement, set the bar low, set it for like a minute. And I have a friend who, um, she says, Deanna, I can't stand meditation. And she's uh, in her 70s now, and she's really healthy, but she wants to meditate, right? So what does she do? Her form of meditation is gardening. She does more of an active meditation where she's not in the place of a lot of thinking. She is moving her hands, she gets a lot of her inspiration from plants and flowers. And for her, she feels just like magnitudes better after she's been in the garden. So you know what? You, you find what works for you. And even if it's not in the classic sense of meditation, don't worry about it. Just find your inner space, whatever calls that forth for you. I think that's the theme of this entire interview is really tuning in and listening to yourself and being present. And with that... It just expands all your options of diet, lifestyle, the things that make you feel good. Do, do more of the things that make you feel good and move away from the things that don't. You know, you nailed it, Drew. Um, and, and I feel like so many people are going on the outside for information. And so if we turn on the inside, 
um, and, and really focus on what we're feeling, what we're sensing. Many people are not so connected into their bodies, but when they start to change their awareness level, they go on an elimination diet. They listen to these podcasts. What they're going to realize is that their body has such great information, and the more that we honor it, the more that we're going to be in that coherence. I love it. Uh, Dr. Minnick, can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and some of the work? And, um, you know, if there are some practitioners that are listening here too, I know you have some great training programs that you do for practitioners as well. I would love for you to mention that so everybody can know how to continue to stay involved with all the great things that you're up to. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I would say that the best way to, to reach me, whether the blogs, my podcast, uh, all of my programs is on my website, which is my name, deannaminnick.com, D-E-A-N-N-A-M-I-N-I-C-H. So you'll find everything there. Incredible. I also want to say I love how colorful your Instagram is. So definitely check out Dr. Minnick <laughs> on Instagram. I love the color. It's very representative of your life and everything that you teach. And I just want to thank you again for coming on this podcast and, and really teaching us how to fish for ourselves. You gave us so many great little gems and wisdoms, but I think you're really trying to have us step into our own intuition. And I, I really love that. And I know our, our listeners appreciate that too. Thanks so much, Drew. Thank you.